0: of uh, the greatest story ever told. It's been our series now for a little while, as so we just go verse by verse through the study of Luke. And just before we do anything else, we better read uh, what this passage says. And uh, nothing better. I, I, I remember a pastor always saying, there's nothing better to say than actually just to read the scripture. And we've read it a couple of times already. And uh, we'll look to get some more uh, more men involved here reading the scripture for us on Sunday mornings and praying Um even though it makes them uncomfortable. It's good. I appreciate, I appreciate our men today, Dave and Tony, leading us in prayer. And, um, look at this section now, all right? Verse number 14 of Luke. He was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided itself, divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, reading just the next two verses. And he said these things, a woman in the crowd, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. On June 16, 1858, a thousand delegates gathered in Springfield, Illinois, to elect a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate. 1858, Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, Illinois. It was Abraham Lincoln. He lost that race. He did not become elected to the Senate. He would later become the president, of course. The country in 1858 was on the precipice of civil war, and Lincoln, when he was asked to serve as that candidate, stood on the steps and gave a speech that included these famous words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Those words that Lincoln used were related to a nation which was on the eve of a disastrous separation, a parting. But Lincoln was actually quoting from the Lord. Lincoln was not the first to use those words. Sadly, more people recognized that Lincoln spoke those words than our Lord did. And the context in which the Lord spoke them is quickly forgotten. And so it is our joy today to examine that together and to find out exactly what this means. Most of us are not familiar with demon possession. Most of us have never uh, experienced that ourselves, of course, or even been around it. Um, and, And maybe it's a little harder to identify in our age than it was back then. But in chapter 11 of Luke, we have a dramatic shift in the uh in the in the story to me it's it's very ironic that what we just studied if you look if your eyes kind of go back up to the first part of luke 11 we just studied kind of this very serene uh calm lord's prayer right that's crocheted onto i don't know if it's crocheted but it's it's knitted onto pillows it's it's uh chiseled into rocks and placed in gardens. It's just kind of this very serene and calm and beautiful passage. And now all of a sudden we have demons. I think that's an ironic shift. Because the rest of the chapter, just glancing at chapter 11, the rest of it, and even into chapter 12, it shifts from this beautiful, pray like this, our Father in heaven. It goes immediately into open hostility, escalating tension. And even the purpose of silencing this teacher. And all of this is kicked off by a pretty simple, innocuous miracle—the exorcism of a demon. It's hardly even talked about in verse number fourteen. This is how it's kicked off. Now he's casting out a demon. It's just kind of—it's just very, very simplistic uh, statement to begin. He's casting out a demon. This isn't something unusual. This isn't something that. Uh, hadn't been experienced before in luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 there is the prophecy and prediction from Isaiah 61 about the casting out of demons, about the breaking free of people who are in bondage. In Luke 4, verse 31 to 37, Jesus cast a demon out on the Sabbath day. In Luke 4, verse 40 and 41, there's just kind of these general exorcisms. Jesus is just going out, casting out demons. And in Luke 8, 1 to 3, it is mentioned that Jesus is casting out demons, and he casts seven out of a woman named Mary Magdalene but in this particular instance so it happened in Luke 4 happened in Luke 8 but now all of a sudden in Luke 11 as time is going on it is this particular instant that elicits some very powerful responses from the people three of them this is just kind of introduction there are three powerful responses verse 14 he was casting out a demon that was mute he's just he's just doing his work and we'll talk about this more in a second and and that he he uh, the demon left him and the mute man spoke, and the people, response number one, help me, response number one. Anybody looking at the Bible? Anybody looking at the Bible? What's the, what's response number one? People did what? Marvel. The people are, whoa, this is amazing. Now, amazement does not always equal acceptance in the Scripture. Amazement does not always equal acceptance or, or even joy at the, you know, we can be amazed at things and not embrace those things. We can be astonished at something and not receive it. And, that, and that's kind of what is happening here. They are they're just marveling. And then in verse 15, we have another response. But some. So you got the people who marveled, response number one, but some. Here's response number two. Yeah, he's doing it, but he gets his power from Beelzebel. He gets his power from Satan. So you have the marveling people, then you have the accusing people. These people are accusing him. And then you have the third response in verse number 16, others. So you have the, you have the people, who, people in verse 15, 14, you have some in verse 15, and you have others in verse 16 who want what? What do they want? Help me out here. More, more signs, right? I, I, we, want more, we want to see a little bit more before we accept this. They're sign seekers. They're sign seekers. Now just, if your eyes just look on your on your Bible, let me just point out to you how the rest of chapter 11 works. And and we're going to be talking about this hostility for a couple of weeks because there's little sections here that we want to land on. The section we're landing on today about um, the demons and Jesus goes on, a house divided, which I, I just read it to you, so you should be able to, to answer this question. Which response is Jesus dealing with when he starts speaking about the demons and the power and the house divided, which response is he speaking to? Is he speaking to the marveling people, the accusing people, or the sign-seeking people? He's speaking to the accusing people. So he's going to deal with that response. Then in verse 27 and 28, he responds to the marveling people. It's a woman out of that marveling people says, oh, blessed is the womb that bore you. Blessed are the breasts that nursed you. Oh, blessed is the person who gave you birth. You are just amazing. You are wonderful. And Jesus responds to that person, no, no, no. Blessed is a person who hears the word of God and does it. So he responds to the amazed people. Then, if you just look on, he starts talking about the sign of Jonah, which is a representative of Jonah going into the whale and and being spat out after three days. It's a a reflection of his resurrection. So now he's addressing the sign seekers. So for the rest of the chapter, he's responding to these sign seekers, but the hostility escalates because in verse number 37, the Pharisees try to get him to dinner to get him away from the crowd. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked to dine with him. You can almost see it. You can almost see it. Jesus in the middle of speaking while he was speaking. Hey, let's go eat together. He's trying to silence him, get him away from the crowd. And then Jesus has this highly tense situation with him. And the rest of the Pharisees saying, whoa. And then in chapter 12, or at the end of chapter 11, verse 53 and 54, you see their goal. They're going to press him now, verse 53. They're going to provoke him. They're going to lie in wait for him. See how the hostility has just ramped up? Can you at least nod your head to say that you see that? Here we go from our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, to we got to lie in wait, press this man and provoke him and, and catch him, and we are done with him. The hostility has just gone from a zero to a ten. And then in chapter 12, he takes his disciples away and warns them. See it in verse number 1 and 2? See, see it is it verse number uh, end of verse number 1? Beware of this that's how the whole passage lays out okay that's how the whole passage lays out today we're only going to address the part about jesus and the devil because as we our whole theme is the kingship of christ can anything thwart the kingdom of christ of course not and that's the thing we want to see here as he battles strongly with the devils but for the next three weeks we got these hostility hostilities happening so what is the theme well i'm going to give you the theme right now and I want us to keep this in our minds for the next three weeks. What is the theme in the midst of this hostility? Is it just to see that people hate Jesus? Okay, week number one, people hate Jesus. They accuse him of the devil, of casting out demons in the power of the devil. Week number two, people hate Jesus. Week number three, people hate Jesus. Well, beware of the people that hate Jesus. That's not, that's not the point. Verse, the, the, the verse that everything hinges on in chapter 11, okay? The most important verse of chapter 11 in all of this hostility is verse number 28. Jesus saying, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. All of this hostility, all of this hostility, these accusations, these tempters, we want more signs. I mean, how nonsensical is that? Just cast out a demon, just predicted their thoughts, right? He says, it says there, Jesus knowing their thoughts. He responded to them before they even actually said it out loud. He cast out this demon, he's done, we need more. We need need to see some more evidence here. here's, Here's the main point. Let's get back to the main point. All of this hostility provides us with the backdrop that it is urgent for everyone, it is urgent for everyone to respond rightly to Jesus. Okay. Is the world hostile to Christ still? 100%. 100%. We'll talk about that in just a second. The world is still hostile towards Christ. In the midst of all that hostility, it is urgent that every one of us be rightly related to Christ. See how how that causes verse 28 to rise to the top? It's like in the midst of all this hostility, Jesus doesn't go after him. Like Jesus isn't like, just constantly on the defense. He is making arguments against it, but he is like trumpeting this thing. Lady, he's basically saying to this woman, lady, and everyone's hearing it, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I'm going to come back to that over and over for the next couple of weeks. Let's get into this. The accusation in verse number 15, Jesus and the devil is the title of our lesson. The accusation is, is that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub's power. That he is a deputy of Satan. I like that word. He is a deputy of Satan. Like Satan is Andy Griffith and Jesus is Barney. He's a henchman. He's a partner with the devil. That's the accusation that's being made. And note that the miracle is quickly ignored. Back to verse 14. There is a demon that has inhabited a man and all of a sudden he's speaking. Now, some people like to, it actually calls the demon mute. Do you see that? In verse 14 it says there is a demon that was mute. That's interesting. Does it mean the person or the demon? It means the demon and here, here's something that's fascinating is the demon was mute and the man in, in my... I'm, I'm going to step over here because the scripture doesn't necessarily say that, but I believe this is the case. The man wasn't mute until the demon inhabited him. See, here's the, here's the thought. Demons and the devil hate everything and everyone that is not exactly like them. And so I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to make you mute. I am mute and you're going to be mute. I hate what is not like myself. And so here we see Satan... And all of his demons' main goal, main desire, Jesus gives us what Satan's main, uh, what Satan's main activity in the world is. John 10.10, 10, the thief, which is referring to Satan, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That is what Satan desires to do. Steal, kill, destroy, and that's what he's doing here. Satan is a murderer. He is a father of lies. He is a destroyer. The Bible uses the word Abaddon or Apollyon. means a destroyer. But greater... Now, now let's understand this. Satan's main desire is not to necessarily steal, kill, and destroy in the physical world, although that's evident here from the muting of the man and the other things that happened that demonic influence. But he is more... If, if I look in verses 14 to 26, which we just read about these people accusing Jesus of doing this power in the work of Satan, I see greater, Satan is exercising greater power on the crowd than the demon is on the man. Everybody follow what I'm saying? If we look at, okay, what is Satan doing in this passage? Let's say you were studying the Bible and you had a Bible study book and said, Verses 14 to 26, what is Satan's activity in this passage? Well, what immediately rises to us, well, he's made that guy mute. He's affecting that man. But he is affecting the crowd more. He's affecting the crowd more. He is blinding them to the truth about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do you ever wonder why people don't receive Christ? I mean, here we have, in the very presence of a crowd, Jesus casting out a demon, the mute man actually speaks, you have this miracle happening, and you have people not immediately rushing to this person saying, who in the world are you? We got to know who you are. We want to be right with you. No, they say, well, you're doing this by the power of the devil, or give us more. I went out I went out to uh, some doors this week, and would you like to come to church? Would you like to come to church? Nah, nah. The reason this is happening is because there is a spiritual battle that is going on in the world, and Satan is at the heart of it, and he blinds the minds of those 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, so they can't see the glory of Christ. I mean, when you're singing this stuff today, when you're singing this stuff today, I hope it's like, I mean, sometimes we're racing through words after words, or, you know, it's just like, it, this, this is, these, these type of, of comments that we're singing, right? The one who set each star in place chose to set his heart on us. Go out tonight, if the sky is clear, and look up and say, wow, who is holding all this in this? He loves me. That king loves me. And all of a sudden, we are just awash in the glory of Christ. Why, aren't, why isn't everybody experiencing that? They are blinded by Satan. You see how much more powerful and pertinent Satan's blinding of the crowd is than this guy who just can't speak? Okay. You ever hear people, well, if God would just, you know, fill in the blank, if God would just do this, then I would believe. They might not say things like, well, we would believe if, if we would have seen the miracles, we would believe. But they might say, well, if God would just cure my cancer, or if God would just, uh, you know, cause me to get that promotion at work or do something, if he could do something for me physically, I would believe. That's, that is so not true. When Satan blinds eyes and hearts of all unbelieving people, folks, our hearts and minds were blinded too. They begin to see Jesus' miracles, his compassion, and his teaching as something to be opposed. And so, now we live in a society and a world that because of the blinding of Satan, they are victims. Remember, they are victims. They are blinded by Satan. They see Jesus' church, his called-out followers' teaching, and even their compassion and even their love and kindness in the community as something to be opposed, and yes, even attributed to Satan. They're ignoring the fact that this man's life has been completely and positively transformed, right? Completely and positively transformed. But society and human beings in general, as governed by Satan, is hostile towards God. Colossians 1.21. For we were saved, we are alienated and hostile to God in our minds. Romans 8.7. The mind that is set on flesh is hostile towards God. Greater for us to note in this passage is not, oh wow, that demon guy got healed, is to see that Satan is after our souls, not our bodies. And Jesus again, verse twenty eight, gives us the antidote to that. Blessed rather are those who hear the word and God of God and keep it. Amazement means nothing. It is obedient to Christ, obedience to Christ's teaching that is the key. Well, the accusation they make is that uh, Jesus is doing in the power of verse number uh, four fifteen. Beelzebub, beelzebub That's kind of a weird word. It's only used in the Gospels. It comes from the term Baal in the Old Testament, the false god Baal, which just means Lord. And we know that some uh, in these days called him Beelzebub, right? You, you heard that. They call him Beelzebub. That beelzebub is like a deriding nickname of beelzebul beelzebub means lord of or let me let me go back beelzebul with no b means it really means lord of the home or lord of the dwelling place but beelzebub with a b means lord of the flies and it actually came from not to be too disgusting but it actually came from lord of the dung pile is where the flies gather you know beelzebub he's the guy that reigns over manure that's kind of where it kind of, a derogatory name. That's not the point of this passage. It it did come to mean as if you can cross this with Matthew chapter ten verse twenty five, Lord of the dwelling, or its equivalent with Satan. This is the ruler of the demons and all evil spirits. Now the people who are making this accusation say, Jesus, we're we're pretty impressed that you just did that, but we believe you're doing that in the power of Satan. It's a real rocket science going on there, isn't it? I mean, uh, let's see. A demon was terrorizing that person and he couldn't speak. This guy came over and cast that demon out. He must be working with the demons. See how foolish that sounds? It makes the statement of principle quoted by Lincoln, a house divided itself cannot stand, very relevant to Christ. What sense does that make, he's saying? Why would I work against myself? Right? And Jesus going to with very great patience, right? I mean, you just think he—you you just want to say, what's the Greek word for numbskull? Because that's what I would use right there. You knuckleheads, right? <laughs> what, what idiots, morons are you? Why would a demon cast out a demon, or or a worker with Satan cast out his own group? Doesn't make any sense. So, if you look in the rest of the passage, that we're to gonna, gonna kind of guide our thinking for the next five or ten minutes. In the next three verses. Jesus uses some if statements. He uses three of them to kind of argue against their thought. Okay, you think I'm casting out demons by Satan. Let's walk through that thought. You know, he doesn't use the word for numbskull. He actually shows more patience and kindness than probably we would. Three if statements, one in each verse, one in 18, one in 19, one in 20. Let's just walk through them real quick. Okay, first thing he says, verse 18. This is the first if statement. If Satan is divided against himself... Okay, so here's the, if. okay, if you really, if Satan is working against himself, here's the if, I'll try to make it clear visually, because that's the way I think. If Satan is divided against himself, so it's an if-then statement, then, what's the then? If, if Satan is working against himself, how, how, how will his kingdom thrive? It will immediately destroy. It, do you think Satan, he's, he's basically saying, do you think Satan enlisted me to start a civil war? To work against himself? Besides that, what did I say Satan's goal was, John 10.10? 10, 10. It was to steal, kill, destroy. And now all of a sudden, just to shake things up a little bit, he's helping a guy, right? He's, cast, he's casting him, now, now he's not going to be mute anymore. Well, I just got tired of all the stealing, killing, and destroying and thought I'd heal for a quick second. Right? It doesn't mesh with his purposes. Jesus is going to all of a sudden perform these pocket miracles of health and well-being just to throw everybody off the trail. <laughs> in fact, in Luke 10, verse 18, when the disciples come back from casting out demons, Jesus says Satan fell like lightning. Like, okay, so if Satan is working against himself, how is his kingdom going to stand? If If he's... If his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's enlisting me, you know, to help and heal, it's not going to work, right? Greek word for numbskulls, that would be a great place to insert it, but Jesus doesn't. To make that claim would be nonsense. Second if statement, okay? Second if statement, verse 19. If I am doing that, okay, here's the if statement. If I am casting out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, then what about your sons, Okay? a little more difficult to understand let me explain what it means who are the your sons that he is talking about in verse number 19 apparently there are other people in those days who are also casting out demons whether they be as some believe jewish pharisees who are doing these exorcisms he could also be referring to the 12 disciples who had just gone out and cast out demons but in either case, there were other people who were casting out demons. Okay? So if I'm doing it by Beelzebul, how are these other people doing it? There are only two alternatives. You are either casting out demons by the power of Satan, or you are casting out demons by the power of God. So if you're saying that I'm doing it by demons, then you, then you must also say that they are doing it by demons. Right? Are they also emissaries of Satan? And go, he says, they will be your judges at the end of verse number 19. They will be your judges. It's unclear exactly what that means. Here's what I think it means. I think he's saying, listen, go to them. Go to these other people that are casting out demons. Ask them, how are you doing this? And they will be the decision makers. They will, or it could mean that they will actually condemn you for having such a stupid thought as to think that Satan would cast out Satan. But Jesus is basically saying, you cannot single me out as the only one who is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so since the first two if statements immediately rule out the fact that Jesus could be casting out demons through the power of Beelzebub, the third statement makes makes a very strong implication. Verse number 20, third if, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then that must mean something. Let me walk back just a second. I want to make sure everybody gets what we're saying. Okay, So the first two if statements, Jesus is basically ruling out the fact that he's casting out demons by help, by Satan's power. It can't be. can't be. Because the division of the kingdom, it would just die. Satan can't work against himself. And it rules out everybody else who's doing this. Either we're all doing it by Satan or we're all doing it by God. So it can't be. So it must be that I'm doing it by the finger of God. That's a great phrase, finger of God. It's only uh, used in Exodus chapter 8, verse number 19, in the third plague on the nation of Egypt, during the time of Moses, when the magicians of Pharaoh could not reproduce the gnats. The plague of the gnats. They said, this must be the finger of God. Jesus is saying, if it is, and it must be, because the first two if statements rule out that it's Satan's power, then it must be a demonstration of what? That the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we've talked about the kingdom of God a lot in our church. If I'm doing it by the, ki- by, by the finger of God, you know what that means? The kingdom of God has come, which means this, that God's rule and reign is being demonstrated because he's more powerful than Satan, and also the opportunity now for you to enter into that kingdom with God. That's been our theme today, with God as your king is being made available. Do you want to be right with this king? Then if you do, go back to our theme verse, verse 28, you got to keep and obey the word of God. I'm going to explain what that means too in just a second. The rule and reign of God and an invitation to be part of that is here and nothing can stop the kingdom of God. All the powers of hell and all the forces of the devil are banished when his kingdom breaks in. No puny demons or Satan himself can stand against our powerful sovereign king who is superior to all of his enemies and Satan powerless in his presence. Martin Luther said this, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. We have to cringe and cower, and Satan, he's after us. These demons, what? our king is powerful. Praise God for our King, this powerful Savior, our deliverer. You can consider Luke four, eighteen and nineteen fulfilled as he comes and breaks our chains. Now the passage finishes with these two things and we'll be done. He gives a I, I would say, I would say I try to word them with the same letters because it helps me. If it doesn't help you, fine. But I, I see that there is a wonder and then there is a warning. There is a wonder and there is a warning. And this'll this will be how we finish. He tells two little stories, one to illustrate the wonder and one to illustrate the warning. Okay? This, we we end it in verse 21. Here's the story that indicates the wonder. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is sharing a lesson, and basically the principle is this, that something that is guarded by a strong person is safe. If someone at night came into our home, we have a vicious, psychotic animal that would drive that person away, unless they had a stronger thing than that vicious animal. Everything in the house is safe until something stronger than Maisie comes, right? Uh, Your home too. Uh, it, it's, it's As long as the thing that is guarding it is strong, everything inside is safe. To overpower it, you need something stronger. That's a pretty simple principle, isn't it? But what Jesus is saying is regarding the devil and himself. He's picturing devil as the strong man, guarding this soul which he is blinded and demonized. This relates to anybody who's outside of Christ. And as long as he's in control, his goods are safe. That soul belongs to the devil until someone who is stronger, and that is our Lord, our King, comes and kicks that guy out of there. Divides his spoil and takes away his armor in which he trusted. The references here are to two chapters in Isaiah, chapter 49, verses 24 and 25, where it says captives will be rescued from the fierce. And then Isaiah 53, verse 12, part of the servant songs, when he will divide the spoil with the strong. Satan is the strong man, the wealthy prince, whose fortress is unassailable. This is a picture of the devil's dominion, where he stands strong on guard on the souls of men and women. But then it is taken by storm by Christ and he infiltrates with his own love and power. Think about this. In our own strength, we would never break the hold that Satan had over us prior to we were saved. Never. No one ever comes to Christ. That, that's a wrong way of putting it. They are... the, the, the the dominion of sin and Satan that has a grip on their life is broken by the one who is stronger than the one who is holding that person. That is the reality of the gospel. The only trust that we have for deliverance. Like This, this is the nonsense of someone saying, I'm just going to try to be a good person. Or I'm, I'm just going to work real hard. Against the powers of the devil, which are blinding your soul? Pretty, pretty confident in yourself there. The reality of the gospel is that there is no other trust for our deliverance and there is no middle ground on this issue. Verse 23, if you're not with him, you're against him. If you do not gather, you scatter. That's the wonder of the gospel. This is the wonder part. The wonder part is that every one of us, prior to knowing Christ, were were gripped in the talons of the devil and blinded, 2 Corinthians 4, to the gospel. And and. And there's no way we're breaking out of that, right? There's no way to to break free from that hold. Christ has to break those chains. And praise God, he did in my life. Did he do so in yours? That's why we're singing, come people of the risen king who delight to give him praise. Because he's done that for us. Without that, we'd still be lost. We'd probably be nursing a hangover today because we're trying to fill that gap with something that will take away the pain of our sin. But Christ broke through that fortress and grabbed our sin-stained souls, taught us to trust in him and to believe in him. From start to finish, salvation is all about Christ and what he has done for us. That is the wonder of the gospel, and it is a wonder. It's amazing, thrilling, but there's a warning. Let's finish with this. Thank you for being patient. The story is, starts in verse 24 and kind of moves to the end. When the unclean spirit goes out of a person, okay, passes through waterless places seeking rest, this demon is looking for a place to go. And there's nowhere to go in the desert because no people are out there. He wants to find a person to live in and inhabit. And he doesn't find anything out in the waterless places, out in the desert. So he says, I'm going to go back to that house from where I came. And it comes and it finds the house swept and put in order and it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Here's the warning. When Christ comes and enables us to respond to the gospel, takes those blinders off, if we don't, If we don't, look at what happens. This whole section, it's like a lesson in demonology, 24 to 25. There's 13 verbs that are in this section about what the demon is doing. He goes, he passes, he finds, he returns, he comes, he finds, he goes, he brings, he enters, he dwells, right? It's all about what the demon is doing. If that person does not receive Christ when the opportunity is there, right? Can you imagine? I mean, I, I, I'm stepping over here, but can you imagine in the course of preaching, in the course of hearing this thing, man, I'm, I'm starting to get, a, get an understanding that, that I better give my life to Christ, and then, and then you don't. The, the warning is, is that, that this satanic influence will be strengthened. See that? He's, he's not only going to come back He's going to bring seven more evil than himself. And they're going to enter in. And they're going to make it worse than it ever was. Harder than it ever was to respond. So the warning is this. It's it's what I said is is the theme of all of chapter 11. That in the midst of all this hostility, the urgent need is to respond. Man, I have been with person after person after person who was tender to the tender to salvation, really close. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I'm kind of like Agrippa in Acts. I'm almost persuaded to believe. Boy, I, I, let me just go home and think on this for a while. Let me just review, and I'll give this some thought, and maybe we'll get together in a week or so. The warning is the need to respond is urgent. This is not a Flippant thing. It's not like when we go to the used car dealer and say, I gave it a test drive. I just need a few days to think about it. That's not the same thing. Because when when the when the moment of clarity is there towards the gospel and and, and the and and the freedom to respond is given, and then the person doesn't respond, look at what the demons do. The, the satanic influence becomes that much stronger and the control and the returning in force in other words there is a danger for those who may be amazed at christ or even um, analytical about religion and thinking about it without ever responding to it remember the the urgent need is in verse 28 to hear the word of god and keep it and here is the word of god to keep and everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent of your sins and exercise faith and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin and to God. The urgent need we all have today is to respond and to cast that urgent need onto others and to realize how wonderful it is, right? Let's go back to the wonder of what Christ has done for us and the warning that is given. The key here is do we hear and keep the word of God? When we do that, we are blessed. Main thought today, oh, we serve a powerful risen king, don't we? Powerful risen king who infiltrated our souls and saved us. Oh, he deserves our praise, friends. Let's give him it as we pray together.